Golazo. This morning we will turn briefly to one of the five obscurations that obscures the very luminous, blissful, pure nature of our own awareness and look at the natural antibody that is a quality that we already have that can counteract that and dispel it. So it's very cool. You have the problem, but you already you have the built-in problem. You didn't get that from Buddhism. I didn't give it to you. But the antibody also, you don't get from Buddhism, and I didn't give it to you. So you're the package. The second of the five obscurations, now that I've already a couple of days ago discussed this fixation on hedonic well-being or hedonic pleasures, the second one is ill will, ill will. So consider ill will, enmity, resentment's a big one. All of that is in the same package. And we can carry, we carry, the, seeds with, we carry the seeds of that mental affliction or that obscuration with this whether or not we ever meditate, ever practice any kind of dharma. That's a problem we came to Buddhism with. We didn't get it from Buddhism. But also when we practice shamatha a lot, really perhaps any kind of meditation, but especially shamatha, those seeds are just bound to be watered. You know, as you dredge your psyche and the mind settles and you start remembering things and emotions start coming up, it's, it's utterly common, it's totally normal to be sitting there minding your own business in a nice, pleasant environment and getting really pissed off. <laughs> you know? And even though there's nothing around, okay, this is pretty, never mind. <laughs> you know, and just by, you know, memories and just stuff coming up and just finding, whoa. And so it happens, it's normal. Get used to it. But then you would want, but you don't want to wallow there. You don't want to stay there, you know, right? So then look for the natural antibody. And what's that? Sukha. You should learn that word. That's a nice word. You all know dukkha. You already know dukkha. Well, if you know dukkha, then you have to learn sukha too. You have to learn. If you can learn one Sanskrit term, dukkha, then take out the D, put in the S, and there you go. Sukha. And sukha means well-being. Well-being. It's not talking. It's all kinds of sukha for sure. But what's being referred to here is not some sense of bliss or ecstasy or mind-boggling, inconceivable joy. It's a sense of well-being. It's a sense of well-being. And a number of you have expressed that even in your own meditation, let alone enjoying this environment, you know, what's not to enjoy. But some of you have found, oh, I'm getting to the point in my meditation where I actually enjoy it. Uh, I'm finding, I'm starting to enjoy mindfulness of breathing. Um, That's sukha. Uh, when Elizabeth said yesterday, oh, I found that mindfulness of breathing interesting, that's sukha. When you say, I find this interesting, that's an expression of pleasure, right? If you get a rash, you don't say, whoa, that, that's interesting. It catches your attention, <laughs> but you don't call it interesting, right? And so how then can we arouse sukha? Well, as I said, this is a natural antibody that comes through the practice of shamatha. And it really comes into flowering when you actually achieve shamatha, achieve access to the first jhana. You get all five, all five of the antibodies, a great bouquet of antibodies, the five jhana factors. But within the shamatha practice itself, whether it's mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind, awareness of awareness, we can't simply, when we see resentment coming up, resentment, anger, hostility, whatever, we can't just say, oh, then I'll, I'll turn on sukha. And it doesn't work that way. So then how can we arouse sukha? Well, one thing is go back to the practice and find that place, find a way, be skillful, 
find a way to enjoy your meditation practice. Find a way to enjoy it. Right? Now, some of you, as you, as you get more, as the Buddha said, when it's cultivated and developed, mindfulness of breathing, then it brings out this sublime state, an ambrosial state. You know? And it's just through practice. It's by persevering, persevering to the point that you say, oh, I'm starting to get into flow. I enjoy that. I'm starting to get periods where my mind is really calm. I like that. The mind is starting to get clearer. I like that. I'm getting very relaxed in the meditation. I like that. That's sukha. And so from the meditation itself, just by developing and cultivating it, sukha will gradually start percolating up, like water just filtering up in the sands of the desert. You know, uh, It's pretty nice. But it's not just on the cushion doing shamatha, and that is we can give a little bit of help from the outside. So among the four measurables, mudita, empathetic joy. That's really helpful for just getting yourself in a different mindset than the mindset of what are all the rotten things that anybody's ever done to me? And what are all the rotten things that are happening in the world? And why can I be depressed and self-righteously unhappy and miserable at other people's behavior. Okay, there's one way of looking at world, and then we look for an alternative. And empathetic joy is a pretty good alternative, right? So just to reflect upon the the extraordinary range of virtue throughout history, human history, what's taking place in the world nowadays, among your Dharma friends right here in this room. Every every person here, I will tell you, because I've met all of you, one on one, virtually all, even a little bit. Very sincere. Nobody's coming here for phony reasons. There's, not, there's no pretense here. However deeply one goes, however one's approach, however individual or whatever it may be, a bunch of sincere people coming to really try to cultivate their hearts and minds. That's a nice community to be in, right? That's something to rejoice in. To rejoice in your own virtues, to rejoice in your own practice, to be aware of the opportunities you have in this life, to take delight in those, to really very deliberately focus your attention on things that bring about a sense of gratitude, of appreciation, of well-being, of happiness, of satisfaction. Take the reins of your horse, of your attention, and direct it out to grassy meadows that you really feel, oh, there really is a lot to be happy about. And kind of settle there. Settle there. Within our individual life, with the people here in this room, and I imagine for most, if not all of the people listening by podcast, actually have a lot more to rejoice in than be grumpy about. There are a lot of people in the world where that's not true. They have no dharma at all. How many are suffering from poverty? Enormous number. Right? How many right now are suffering from really severe health problems and don't have the medical care they need? That's tough. How many are really old and don't have anyone to take care of them? That's really tough. And the list could go on. Right? And we have Dharma. That should say it all right there. So reflect there. And then it's not all Dharma, as I've said so many times, hedonic well-being is nothing to scoff at. You know? And so we want to be like, again, like a mother raising a small child. First it's mi just mother's milk, and then mothers all know, then what are the gradations from pablum, and gradually, gradually get to getting to an adult diet. 
Um, well, similarly, I think we can be too harsh sometimes. Some of the teachings, if we take them out of context, can sound awfully harsh in Buddhism. Samsara is an ocean of misery. If you have any desire for it all, you're a waste of, t- you're a waste of breath. You're an insincere practitioner. You're a turd. You're totally disgusting. Why are you wasting my time? You know? You're a samsaric being. Bit tough. <laughs> Bit too tough. Right? Because then we can wind up then starving ourselves of any, any kind of wholesome hedonic well being, and then getting no joy from Dharma. And then we get these rigid, uptight Dharma practitioners. who look down on everybody else who's not as rigid and uptight as they are, because they're samsaric, where we're practicing dharma. <laughs> so lighten up. Find that balance. Because after all, before we encounter dharma, we're living on a 100% diet of hedonic stimulation. Isn't it? And then, so wean yourself off of that, but not all at once, not with a guillotine. You don't go from mother's milk to a rare steak. Not that rare steak is exactly where we want to go, but you, know, you get the message. <laughs> so be gentle. Be gentle. Let your whole approach to Dharma be loving. Loving for yourself. Gentle. Gentle transition. And so, even here, there are enjoyments. I mean, number one, this is a pretty beautiful place. So the surrounding, the surrounding area... And then just take it at your own pace. And that's what Sundays are for also. If you can be happy on Sundays, meditating 10 hours a day in your room, then why go outside? Because there aren't many rooms where you have this kind of support. But if that's a bit too intense, then that's not the right way. Maybe it's the beach. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's going over to Divine. Maybe it's hanging out by the pool over at the sports center. But that's for you to decide, right? To find that nice balance. But the orientation here is that we gradually wean ourselves not off of hedonic well-being. Because if you, if, you, if you read the songs of experience of people like Milarepa and others, there's a tremendous appreciation of the beauties of nature, the joys of many, many things in the world. Right? They enjoy that. And so it's not that we should wean ourselves off of hedonic well-being, happiness, ple- pleasure, like enjoying a good meal. On occasion, maybe not here, because it t- does tend to be distracting, but nice music, the beauties of nature, and so forth but rather weaning ourselves off of the dependence on them, the attachment to them. So that if you are plunked into a 49-day dark retreat, you say, oh, good, that's what I wanted. That is, now that's you know, no hedonic pleasure at all, not coming from outside. That's something to move in that direction. Okay? So to sum up then, in terms of the shamatha practices, If you can take enough interest in the practice of mindfulness of breathing, as Elizabeth was commenting yesterday, that you actually get interested in that very end of the in-breath so you know, ah, that's the end. Out-breath hasn't begun yet. This is the interim breath. Ah, here we go. Here's the beginning. Slow it down a little bit. Okay, here we go. Hee-wee. Woo. Out-breath. It's finished. In-breath hasn't begun yet. Interim breath. Oh, here it comes. In-breath coming. Oh, oh. You know. 
you can find that interesting, if you can enjoy breathing, then you've tapped into, into eudaimonia. You've tapped into a source of genuine happiness because you're enjoying being alive. That is, breathing is not something in addition to being alive. It's part of the, part of the program. Right? So if you can enjoy breathing, that means you can enjoy simply being alive. That's a really good foundation for enjoying hedonic pleasures when they're dished up, but not missing them when they're not. Because you already have your little teaspoons full of genuine happiness coming in. Even if it's not a fire hydrant. Okay, teaspoon by teaspoon. You know? And then if you can enjoy settling the mind in its natural state, not by the entertainment value of what's coming up, by the, but by the quality of awareness that you're experiencing, then you really are in a position to enjoy the dying process. Because you'll stop breathing, so you won't be able to enjoy that anymore. You know, it's finished. But there's more to come. There are coming attractions after the breath stops, and that is an, a, a sequence, an ongoing flow of mental experiences in samadhi. So if you've already gotten used to enjoying watching your mind dissolve into its natural state, boy, I've got some really good news for you. When you die, that's going to happen all by itself, and you're going to get natural samadhi. You don't have to deal with it, what Natu was talking about yesterday, but what about all these impressions coming in, the sounds and sight and so forth? Don't worry, they vanish. <laughs> problem solved <laughs> you know and if you can enjoy that and not be freaking out by oh I can't see anything I can't hear anything yeah you're dying what part of that is unclear <laughs> if you can enjoy what's left over if you can enjoy what's left over as your senses are imploding and say yeah this is what I've been striving for all along if I haven't achieved shamatha already okay let's give it one last shot you know then you can enjoy dying so, number one, mindfulness of breathing, you can enjoy living. Number two, settling the mind, you can enjoy dying. And you know where I'm going here. If you can rest in awareness of awareness and enjoy that, then you can enjoy being dead. Because now the mind has settled in its natural state. Your, your, conscious, your coarse mind has dissolved into substrate consciousness. You are dead. But if you've already gotten used to enjoying that, then... I think we have a complete package here. You can enjoy living, dying, and being dead. Now, the last one's the shortest one. Because that's only going to be a matter of hours. You know? And then that little, little treat, your little dark retreat, <laughs> will be finished. But if you've had some taste, by whatever practices it is, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, whatever it may be, if you've had some taste of rikpa, some, some glimpse, some genuine realization of rikpa, pristine awareness, then when the clear light of death spontaneously manifests, rikpa is unveiled <coughs> following being dead, then you have a real chance of, as this lovely metaphor, then the metaphor is of the child crawling up under the lap of the mother, or of recognizing an old friend you'd how do you say, lost contact with? And then you say, oh, my old friend. And that is sometime during the life, you've had some contact, some acquaintance with Rikpa. You probably lost it. But now, here's my old friend. Of course, it's only a metaphor. But it's now coming home. You're coming now to the ground Rikpa. The Rikpa was always there. 
and now finally unveiled because everything else is gone. Even your substrate consciousness has evaporated away for a while. And so then this non-dual realization of rikpa, the clear light of death, and now if you can taste that and ascertain it, you can actually enjoy being who you are and who you've always been. So enjoy. Let's practice shamatha. as if slipping into a cool swimming pool on a hot summer day. Let your awareness slip into the transparent depths of the space of your own body, right down to the ground. Set your body at ease, culminating in softening your eyes. Now utterly release yourself into the breath. Release your mind into the present moment. Simplify, simplify. Releasing that which no longer exists, releasing that which does not yet exist. <laughs> 
and settling into the one reality you can know directly. Now it's time to learn how to breathe by not breathing. By not being involved, not interfering. Letting your awareness be as non-reactive as space itself. As non-possessive as space itself. as if you were having an out-of-body experience where your awareness rests in the space of awareness itself, open and expansive. Observe the flow of energy from the nostrils down to the level of the navel, flowing down as you breathe in, flowing up as you breathe out. Let your mind be especially quiet, silent. When you come to the end of each inhalation, note exactly when that occurs. Note the pause, the interim inhalation. And then the beginning of exhalation as you relax deeply all the way through.
especially as you come to the end of the outbreath. Fearlessly. Relax in the body. Totally release the breath. Let your mind be pin drop silent as you note the very end of exhalation. You note the interim exhalation, whether it's short or long. And you're right there when the inhalation begins. Allowing it to flow in of its own accord, whether it's a very shallow breath or deep, however it may be, simply witness it without inhibiting it or helping it along.
There's a lot of momentum behind rumination. Long-standing, deep-rooted habit. But breath by breath, like a flow of water carving a path through rock, with every out-breath release, carve a new habit, a habit of quiet sanity and clarity, relaxed and still.
Oh, yeah. I just had a flight of fantasy. I was imagining an education system where children from preschool on would be taught like, Mommy, Daddy, Eudaimonia. That would be part of their working vocabulary very early on. You know? That it would be part of the education system to just show children the avenues into genuine happiness by way of our conduct, by cultivating the mind, bringing in very, very gentle, very simple, fun exercises, cultivate the attention, empathy, and so forth. And then just have that continue all the way through elementary school, secondary school, right into college, through college. (coughs) So when students graduated in whatever field, it could be civil engineering, but of course you would always minor in eudaimonia. I mean, why wouldn't you? Because civil engineering is a very good right livelihood, but it'll never bring you eudaimonia. And why would you want to have only hedonic when you can also have both? So that that would be flowing all the way through the education system. So when students graduated from college, they'd be well-equipped to face the modern world, to make a living, to find hedonic well-being. But they'd also have like 15 years of training exploring their own internal resources and graduating as happy people. Wouldn't that be weird? (laughs) Enjoy your day.